Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, we are chatting to Simon from Hattingley Valley Wines. Now, if you'd said to Simon Robinson in 2008 that his Hattingley Valley vineyards would have the capacity in a really good year to produce 580,000 bottles of wine, or that his sparkling rosé would be crowned a world champion, he would have said you were absolutely crackers. And yet here we are in just over a decade, Hattingley, and to be fair other GB newcomers have done brilliantly in what is a very old traditional industry. Even though in the early days our efforts were written off as being poor copies of German varieties like Reisling and Müller Thurgau. In this conversation you'll discover why finally our English sparkling wines are now doing so well and why Simon calls his sector agriculture on steroids. It'll make your eyes water when you do, and you'll wonder why on earth he gave up his partner position at a city law firm to go on such a roller coaster. But I personally was very fascinated and very excited to finally get my heads around the English wine scene and why. Not only are we catching up with our older European partners, but in many ways, with innovation and speed of learning, we're taking over. I very much hope you enjoy this week's wine-inspired conversation. Thank you. Simon Robinson from Hattingley, thank you so much for sparing the time to let me come and have a chat with you. Morning, Tom. <laughs> Good morning. Lovely, <laughs> Lovely to meet, meet you. Uh, and likewise. Um, so um, I've done a few of these. I've been doing these a couple of months. And one of my favourite things, apart from meeting incredibly uh, interesting people, is that I'm getting to see so much of the uh, the UK countryside. Uh, can you just explain where in the world are we? Because it's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, we're right in the middle of Hampshire. I'm not sure beautiful is possibly the right description right now because we've had the most appalling weather for the last 24 hours. But when the sun comes out again, as I'm assured it will, it is a beautiful beautiful spot uh, between Winchester and Basingstoke uh, and Alton in the other direction. So we're right in the countryside. Beautiful, lovely Hampshire rolling hills. Great. Yeah. And we're at your uh, winery and I would describe this as a, as a boardroom or, a, or all sorts of rooms. Tasting room, we tasting call it. Room. Although okay. it does act as a boardroom, meeting room. Excellent. And Recording studio. At the yeah, moment. absolutely. Yeah, and the um, the vineyards near here as well, because this is the they're about a mile and a half away. Uh, okay. Although we we actually take grapes from about t- over twenty growers now across the whole of the south of England. So um, we grow our own, we manage a vineyard, and we've got lots of other suppliers as well. Amazing. Uh, mostly Sussex and Hampshire, but we have some in Essex. We have one one in Dorset. Um, 
Kent, uh, all, all over the south of England. Good. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to come and have a conversation about what's been happening, both with uh, Hattingley, but also just the UK wine scene in mm. general. And we'll, we'll get into some detail about that. And we'll definitely mm. come back to the weather because that's my eternal challenge in uh, in running restaurants and yours even more so, I think. In, uh, uh, I think even more so, probably. <laughs> I don't know how you cope with the roller coaster, but we'll come to it. But before yeah. we do, can you just explain what was your background pre-Hattingley? Um, well, I was a lawyer up in the city for 30 odd years um, uh, and f- uh, a f- commercial farmer down here. We, we still run a commercial farm, mostly arable, and, uh, but my eldest son runs a livestock operation for us as well. And um, it was that the genesis of Hattingley actually comes from the farm. Uh, we were about, I suppose, the late 90s, early noughties. Um, the wheat price was low, about £60 a tonne, and we were looking for a diversification. I'd always had an interest in wine. I mean, lots and lots of people can say that, um, but uh, probably uh, a little more than an enthusiastic amateur, but not took it much to an extreme, more. didn't you? So <laughs> I took it slightly to an extreme. It did go back a long way. Um, and uh, so uh, we did a bit of soil sampling, um, and in 2008, we planted our vineyard. Of course, the, the great what-if of that history is uh, if the wheat price had been £200 a tonne as it was five years later, would we have done it at all? We'll never know that. Wow, that's a huge change in price, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, I mean, it came back a long way from there. In fact, I don't think it ever quite got to 200 It was about 180 190 at one point. Um, and now I think it's probably about 140 so, with, with the adventure that you've had, which we're going to come to, are you, are you pleased it dropped down that low? Or are you thinking, my goodness, that would have been an easier life just uh, sticking to it? Oh, it would have been an easier life, yes, <laughs> that's for sure. And, and more importantly, a... Um, uh, a less variable life in yeah. terms of uh, yields. Uh, on the other hand, it wouldn't have been nearly so interesting. It's yeah. been a fantastic journey that we've been on and not one that I planned to, to do um, to nearly the extent it's become. Uh, when If you told me 10 years ago what we would be doing today as a winery, I'd have said you were completely crackers, frankly. Yeah, that's often the case, and it? it just takes that mm. first step. So mm. if you um, you planted your first vineyards in 2008, when did you actually start thinking about whether, you know, doing this commercially? What year was this? Uh, did this journey well, start? I always said it was going to, had to be a commercial venture uh, because uh, I work on the basis of something like this. If it's not commercial and you're, you're having to f- fund it, um, it's not going to last, um, even if you don't get bored with with um, financing it. Uh, you can be rest assured your children probably will. Uh, and so you might as well not bother, frankly. Um, so it was always going to be a commercial venture. It's just grown to a scale that we never anticipated. Um, and uh, uh, it's been a... <laughs> As I say, it's been a great journey. Yeah. So when you started, um, early 2000, presumably, what was the state of the English wine? Was there an English wine scene at that time? Uh, yes, there was. Um, and English wine in the late 90s, early 2000s had a, uh, you might say, a certain reputation um, and not, frankly, a very good one. Um, but something had started happening, and this is really what triggered the interest as much as anything, Um in the late, very late 80s, early 90s, um, one of our 
main competitors today, Nightimber, uh, under the, the original owners, Stuart and Sandy Moss, had decided uh, that they would start making, in essence, champagne. Obviously, none of the sparkling wine producers here can call their wine champagne. Um, but they decided that the uh, soil in the UK and the climate uh, was very similar to the soil and climate that uh, is in Champagne itself. And they, they're quite right about that, although we'll probably come on to that a little later. Um, and that, they, that implied to them that it would be sensible for uh, UK producers to be making sparkling wine from Champagne varieties. Now, that was a big change because in earlier years, um, if you go went back 20, 30, 40 years even, um, I think probably what happened was that post-war, um, some servicemen came back and decided they wanted a quiet life in the countryside or maybe they'd got a bit of land, who knows. And they thought that uh, growing grapes and making wine would be a nice, gentle way of passing their time. And they looked across to North Germany um, and they decided to plant the North German varieties, the Muller Thurgau's, Silvana, uh, the Rieslings, and so on and so forth. Um, and it didn't work. And interestingly, uh, I've heard, or I haven't actually researched this, but I've, I'm told that New Zealand made very much the same mistake, and it wasn't until later that they started planting much more successful varieties. And um, the reputation that English wine had by the late 90s was based on the still wine that people were making from the North German varieties. And the problem, of course, is that um, in North Germany, you, you do get some long, hot summers, so the grapes mature properly, whereas it tends to be more of a rarity here. And the Champagne method uh, is designed specifically to uh, deal with uh, what in the southern France or Australia or California or most parts of the world would be regarded as immature grapes. In other words, they're quite low in sugar by their standards and quite high in acids. And it's the same in Champagne. Champagne is a terrible place to grow grapes. Um, not terrible, that's slightly too, too strong, but um, it's not a great place to grow grapes. The most northerly part of France which grows good grapes of still wine is really Burgundy. Um, and that's one of the reasons you don't get or haven't until recently, and this may change, of course, uh, with climate change, um, you don't get still champagnes. So that's the history of okay. what's and, been and, going on. And why on. is champagne presumably more forgiving? Why, why can you make good champagne from immature grapes that you can't make still wine from? Uh, there's a whole variety of reasons, actually, um, all of which, none of which alone are the answer, but uh, together uh, create it. First and foremost, when people drink champagne or our sparkling wine, they expect a certain acidity in the uh, taste. So consumers have, in effect, been trained over centuries to enjoy that just slight sharpness, which in a uh, burgundy red or white, they really wouldn't expect to taste. So that's the first thing. But um, there are lots of other little uh, uh, techniques that we have. Uh, we will use, for example, barrel fermentation, and the, uh, probably more than um, most people would. Uh, particularly at Hattingley, we've, we've always been heavy on barrel ferment fermentation. Now, why do I uh, say that? Well, barrels will temper the um, 
the flavour of the grapes, of the grape juice, um, and make it softer and more approachable. Um, so there you've got the first most obvious technique. This is using use. barrels rather than using big S steel. Big steel tanks, yeah. Right. Um, uh, we don't put everything through barrel, quite the reverse, uh, and we, t we judge it entirely according to the year and the... Uh, quality of the vintage, uh, so that some years it might be thirty percent of our classic will be in, will be barrel fermented, and other years it will only be ten percent. And you would blend that with the steel as well, or you have a hundred percent barrel fermented. Uh, <coughs> nothing in this game is ever simple. Uh, <laughs> mostly, it's blended with uh, juice fermented in steel. Right. Um, but we do do one particular uh, style of wine, which is our super premium wine, which is one hundred percent barrel fermented. Um, so barrel ferment is something that we are uh, very strong on at Hattingley and uh, we think is a useful uh, addition to the complexity of the wine, if you like. Second thing we do, um, uh, people obviously know that you add yeast to grape juice to create alcohol uh, and it's the sugar in the grape juice that is converted. But you can also do a second fermentation. This isn't the one that creates the bubbles in the wine. Uh, this is, well, it's still in tank, or because uh, this will only happen in um, in steel fermentation, uh, which is called malolactic fermentation. And this is a bacteria bacterial fermentation where the malic acid in the grape juice, uh, and malic acid is what you taste uh, in apples. It's the green apple flavor that people talk about. The bacterial ferment converts that into lactic acid, which is a sort of softer, more gentle acid that you uh, get in milk, hence the name. So malolactic fermentation is the second uh, approach we use. And that, uh, again, we don't put everything through mallow because we do want to retain some of the malic uh, acids in there for the flavour. Um, uh, again, it depends really on the year and the vintage, the quality of the grapes, the better the quality the higher the sugars, the lower the natural acids, and therefore the less we need mallow. Um, but it can be anything from, again, 30%, it's rarely more than 30%, to down to 5 or even 10, from 10 or even 5%. Okay. And are these techniques you're talking about, is this the same as would the approach in, in the Champagne region? Is, is this a traditional approach, or are we having to oh, adapt it so. the UK? Oh, yeah. No, this is, this is well known. This, this is not a um, novel technique by any means. Right. Um, what we do do here, which is relatively novel, although again it came from Champagne, uh, is um, doing the first two ferments, the alcoholic fermentation and the malolactic fermentation, uh, at roughly the same time. Um, and the reason we do that is for the malolactic, you have to heat the wine to get the uh, mallow going. And you heat it to about 23, 24 degrees, which normally speaking, you would think would be a bit of a disaster for the wine. Um, but of course, with the alcoholic fermentation, that ferment creates heat. And so if we do them uh, at the same time, we co-inoculate, as they say in the, in the trade, uh, you're using the ferment, uh, the heat from the first fermentation, the alcoholic fermentation, to get the malic, malolactic fermentation started. Um, so and that has some knock-on benefits as well. In particular, uh, it creates a much fresher, fruitier wine, which is really what we want anyway. Um, and, of course, it's uh, good for the planet, if you like, because we're not having to use energy to heat the wine the second time around. 
Okay. So it all sounds very obvious when you say we look at northern France, in essence, to, to, to mm. kind of choose the grapes rather than northern Germany and clearly going mm. south. Sounds, sounds obvious. Why did it take us? Presumably we've been making wine or we've been making wine in France for centuries. This is really quite new here, isn't it? Why did it take so long for us to cotton on? Because my understanding is that some of the soil in the Champagne region actually comes under the English Channel and we've got similar chalky kind of, again, I'm quite naive on this kind of stuff, but from a historical conversation that we've got, you know, we've got the right kind of, maybe slightly off on the climate, but we've got the right soil. Yeah, why, why, why the big delay for us to cotton on to this? There's no answer to that. Right. Um, I, I, I've said we on were a number of beer. occasions uh, why we couldn't have done this 50 or 100 years ago. I have no idea. I guess the climate probably was less benign uh, that long ago, but 40 years ago, I would have thought we could have been doing it 50 years ago. I think the honest answer is... Um, slightly historic as you rightly say uh, until probably the early 80s this was really a beer country people didn't drink wine much um, and uh, so the, the interest was amongst a few uh, enthusiasts um, I think perhaps more uh, more historically and prosaically if you go back in, far enough in time uh, wine was grown, grapes were grown here and wine made in the Middle Ages, but it was nearly all made in the monasteries. Uh, and I think probably what happened, and I, you know, if any historian listening to this disagrees, I'd love to hear from them because um, uh, I, I haven't really researched this, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, when Henry VIII um, snatched the monasteries, uh, the two things happened. First, the vineyards fell into disrepair because the monks were expelled from the monasteries. And of course, they were the ones who also had the expertise. So we started losing the expertise. And following on from that, uh, you also had the mini ice age of the 17th century, when it clearly wouldn't have been a good idea to grow grapes. So by the beginning of the 18th, mid-19th mid century, uh, we had no vineyards, no expertise, and as a beer-drinking country, very little interest. Um, there were one or two uh, super enthusiasts. I think the Earl of Butte tried to plant one in Wales in the 1880s, but you know we're talking about one vineyard in the whole country, or maybe two. Um, so... I think probably the answer is historically. The thing that the other thing that I really can't answer is why it took Stuart and Sandy Moss, who were Americans, who happened to be living over here at the time, uh, to decide that, that this was the way to go. So it wasn't even us that realised it was the way to go. Yeah. And Sandy Moss, I believe, had a history in the wine industry in California, which is probably why she latched on to what we should be doing. Okay. Well, as a, a proud Brit, I, I love any opportunity to wind up our lovely uh, French neighbours, I suppose. It's good fun and exciting. Mm. So I'm super pleased that we decided yeah. to do it. You're right, Have incidentally, we... about the soil. Am I? Uh, okay, the, the chalk formation in Champagne does indeed reach across northern France, come under the channel and comes up. And Hampshire is basically one big bed of chalk and it's the same formation. Really? Great. Uh, so we've we've learnt fast. We've learnt late, but we've learnt fast. We, we've we've kind of you know we've got the grapes. We've 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 copied them. How are we doing from a quality perspective? Where are we at now? Um, well, uh, we're right at the top of the quality curve. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And part of the reason I think um, is uh, well, there's a number of reasons for this. 
We're not hidebound by the practices and regulations of the French and the Germans and the Italians who uh, who do, and the Spanish for that matter, uh, who do have a tendency to say, well, this is the way we do it, this is the way we've always done it, and why would we change? And in many respects, why would you? Um, so uh, our natural tendency uh, is also to look to uh, the New World wine producers of Australia, New Zealand, California, um, Chile perhaps, uh, and look at their techniques and say, well, why don't we do this and, and try it and see what happens. So innovation in this country is now, uh, in the wine industry, is now very strong, completely the converse of 25 years ago. And I suppose that's partly because the uh, the sort of people that go into it tend to be uh, people who are, are going to say, not, we can't do that, but why shouldn't we? You know, let's see what happens. I have a, a phrase that I use in some of the tours we do around Hattingley, which is I regard us as the, the new world in the old world. Um, we're obviously in old Europe. Oh, well, sort of. <laughs> don't, don't even go there. Uh, we won't go there, no. Uh, but in terms of our whole attitude towards winemaking, we're very much a new world producer. And this isn't just Hattingley, this is the whole industry in many respects. The other reason that quality becomes important is uh, the one thing that we do suffer from here is relatively low yields in the vineyard, um, probably about half what are achieved in France. I mean, that's a gross generalisation. Because course. of weather? Because of the weather. <clears throat> uh, partly because of the weather, partly also uh, because of the way we plant. We tend to plant slightly further apart, again, slightly to deal with the... the um, Climate. Uh, we want as much sunlight as possible to fall on the grapes, so you don't want to plant the vines too far, too close together. But also because we use tractors now, not horses, so you don't have to plant. You can plant them. You have to plant them slightly further apart to allow the tractors to go up and down. Um, and that, but that low yield has an impact on the cost of the product. And uh, if you're going to charge more for your product, which we do, and we tend to price it. We're basically at the champagne prices, slightly slightly below. Um, in fact, with a movement in sterling recently, quite significantly below, which is helpful. Um, uh, but it does mean that we have to be a top quality product. That's the bad news. The good news is that because we have such a long growing season here, relatively cool climate, we can actually make really top quality products. And that's seen in the awards which English wines have been getting over the last 20 years. In fact, it was one of the things that first attracted my attention was a, one of the wineries got a, a gold medal in, I think it was a decanter award. Um, and here at Hattingley, uh, we've had I don't wish to sound immodest, but we've had so many awards now, I don't even know how many it is over the years. Uh, but the two that I think stand out were the trophy for the finest uh, sparkling red, uh, sp sorry, finest sparkling rosé and the finest sparkling uh, Blanc de Blanc in the world against all comers uh, in the last couple of years. So, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? How did, yeah. how did that go down? Was that uh, in the industry? Was that, and I mean, not the UK industry, but the global, were they kind of like, damn, those Brits coming in, coming in at the end and... Uh, Taking some glory, did that make you chuckle, or um, is, it, is everybody well, in dealing, it together? With, <laughs> dealing with the first one in, in the industry? It's the domestic industry. We're all delighted when people win awards uh, because it only helps brand Britain, if you like. And at the moment, uh, although English wines have become much better known in the UK than they were, uh, 
there are still millions of people in this country who've never tasted a sparkling wine made here. Um, uh, there's an event we do in London, Taste, uh, which is on in uh, June this this year. Um, and when we had people come onto our stand, I always used to ask people, everyone, have you ever had an English wine before? And half of them said no. The other half, uh, over half of them, couldn't remember what they'd had. So there's still a pretty significant degree of ignorance, even in this country. Um, it's improving very rapidly, thankfully. Outside the UK, there's a puzzlement. You know, people just find it difficult to believe that wine is made in England. Uh, and uh, it's changing very quickly. It starts naturally enough in the trade itself. So if you go to America, which is our biggest export market, um, if you'd been there five years ago and asked any sommelier in America, I'd bet that 999 out of 1,000 would say that they don't make wine in England. That's not the case now. Most of them will have heard that it is being made. They may not have tasted it, but they will have heard it's being made. So we're gradually um, breaking the mould and getting out into the wider world. Mm. I think it's really exciting. As a restaurateur who've always wanted to buy British where we can, so certainly with... I know asparagus and strawberries and rhubarb and things that you can grow in England regularly. We follow that. Clearly, mm. our coffee and most of our wine doesn't come from England, but we've always wanted to support it. You're right. Mm. I mean, I've been doing it 14 years, and certainly in the early days, and, and again, I'll come back to, to still in a minute. Um, but it was very difficult to justify the quality to price ratio on the menu. And even now, mm. it's definitely changing, but still people's natural is just to go champagne, prosecco. And, mm. and where we need to put... British sparkling on the menu at that price, very close to champagne. It's still a challenge to get people to understand. So it's changing, but it's one of the key reasons of wanting to come and have this conversation, really, I think, is it's so exciting to see the recognition that we're now getting and the awards that we're now getting and that genuine, before it felt a little bit like, you know, support the underdog and buy British. And yeah, it's not quite <laughs> as good and it's a bit expensive, but, you know, we'll get there. Now it's kind of like we can go, you know what? It's it's a really, really good product. Yes, you've got to pay for it. Are we going to be able to, and I suppose more so with with you know, Prosecco, I guess, but are we going to be able to get to the point where the yields in the UK mean we can compete a little bit more so that the restaurants can use it? Or do you think this is always going to be a very premium product because of the challenges of, of wine in the UK? I don't think I know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, uh, it's not a price question, but the underlying point you make is, are we going to improve the yields? It is certainly something the industry would love to do and would love to approach. Uh, and there is research going on. We even at Hattingley, we do. We've been doing our own little bits of research into this area. Um, it this is the sort of thing because you're talking about growing seasons. It takes time. You know, it won't happen in two years. Suddenly decide, oh, that's the way to do it. We'll fix it. Um, but if 10 years from now we've improved the yields, I mean, the starting point, interestingly enough, is probably not improving uh, the absolute amount of yield, um, by which I mean getting from perhaps three tonnes an acre to four tonnes an acre, uh, which of course would be a big improvement. Um, it's more uh, regulating the variability of the yield year on year, uh, which is direct result of the weather. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're growing wheat, uh, you might get three and a half to four tons an acre. In a good year, you might be up 10% or down 10%. Um, wine grapes are completely different. It's I call it agriculture on steroids, really. Um, if 
it's, this is a slight uh, simplification, but if you said the average yield, oh, sorry, yield in a good year, uh, 2014 was what I would call a good year, uh, we might get three tons an acre. And if you call that 100% yield, um, to give you an idea of the variability that we've had, 2010 was 100%, 2011 was 50%, 2012 was 0%. We lost the entire crop in 12. 13 and 14 were 100, 15, 16, 17 were 50, and 2018 was 180. Now, if we could get the yields that, shall we say, averaging 90% every year, that would make a big difference, uh, obviously. So that's the first thing we'd like to do. If we can then get the yields up from three tonnes to three and a half or four tonnes an acre, that'll make a further difference. I just caution slightly, um, I don't think we're ever going to get down to Prosecco-type prices or Carver prices. Um, I don't think we'd, we'd particularly want to. Um, and because the quality of those uh, are not generally particularly high. They're, they're, they're fine drinks. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to people to think that I don't, don't like people drinking Prosecco. Quite the contrary. I love people drinking Prosecco. I applaud them doing so because drinking Prosecco is uh, it's almost an entry-level sparkling wine. And if that introduces people to the, the joy and the fun of having bubbles in your wine, that's fine by me because uh, after a time, if even 10% of the Prosecco drinkers want something a little bit better and they find they can pay for it, um, with luck they'll come to us and, they'll start, and that will boost our market. So Prosecco and Carver, are, they have a place in the market and that's fine by me. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think most people I've spoken to, whether it be coffee or whether it be craft beer makers, they all say the same thing. There's entry level, you know, Starbucks is an entry level coffee that then leads you on to the more kind of premium coffee, the big national or international beers, you know, maybe lead you into then learning a little bit more about hops and the kind of style of beers that you like and hopefully lead to the micro producers. So I agree with that. Actually, I hadn't heard that, but I can well believe it. Yeah, well, I've only, like I say, been having these conversations for a couple of months, but it's similar themes come out. Much as I uh, moan about the big kind of brands taking over the industry, people reassure me a little bit and kind of say you know what sometimes they are a, a stepping stone into that understanding which then leads mm. them on to the premium product as a matter of interest what happened in 2012 to get to zero percent was this an early frost or something what um actually funny enough we didn't have an early frost in 2012 I, I don't think but it was rather uh cold we had did have rain at flowering which is the second big uh, disaster um we are frost late late april frost is a real problem um because it kills the buds and we had that in 16 and 17 in 17 we lost 90 percent of the buds but we got uh, secondary buds coming through so it became a 50 percent year um but there was some rain at flowering in uh, 2012 but more importantly it was just cold and damp and right. cold and damp all the way through so the grapes just never matured yeah and realistically then when you talk about innovation and research i mean mm. how on earth can you research your way out of weather um, well, there are things that, I mean, don't forget, we're not the only industry that has this sort of problem. Uh, apples, uh, strawberries, they all have weather issues. And they've developed some techniques which could possibly be uh, adapted for grapes. Uh, strawberries uh, and a lot of the soft fruits are grown under polytunnels. Now, we can't do that with grapes, and we wouldn't particularly wish to, I don't think. Um, 
but some of the ways that they heat those polytunnels uh, might be adaptable for, for grapes. Or you could possibly provide some kind of much more limited protection for the delicate parts of the, of the vine. So it's watch this space. Uh, how can you do it? Well, if I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here and be out there doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, talking of, of which, so your, um, what's your, your impact of the uh, nationally? What's the, your chair of the UK wines? Is it GB Wines? Uh, it's Wines of Great Britain Limited. Wine, wines of Great Britain, yeah. okay, perfect. Uh, so you, which is the National Association of Producers. Nice. And, you, and you're working together then to an extent. I imagine a number of those people are also your competitors, but you also join forces to represent yeah. WineGB. Um, but the, the nice thing about the industry, although we do work together, um, entirely proper ways, of course. Uh, I'm not saying that just we're, we're very decent, uh, proper about the way we do things. Um, partly, uh, and that's not a problem, partly because... Um, Everyone sees the success of somebody as a success for everybody. Uh, there will come a time when it becomes a much more competitive industry in the way that champagne or someone else is. But at the moment, we are so small, uh, relatively speaking, that uh, if I see that uh, one of our competitors has got a big account in America, then hooray, because frankly, uh, the more people there are out there exporting to the States, we, we export a lot to America, um, but we couldn't open the American market all on our own. Uh, not only do we not have the supplies to do that, it would just be a bit weird. You know, if you can you imagine what it would be like if there was only one Australian wine on sale here, it, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, so uh, we encourage each other, uh, we share uh, information on you know, th things like how the American market operates. You know, it's all public information. There's nothing secret about it. It's just short-circuiting um, people's efforts. Uh, what, of course, we don't talk about is things like market share or um, uh, pricing or anything like that because that would, wouldn't be right. Mm. As a matter of interest, why, why the US specifically more than our well, neighbouring Europe? Actually, and I, I, I'm sure all the others will probably have the same approach, naturally looks to champagne uh, and where the champagne markets are. And why do we do that? Well, really because our um, our closest competition is champagne. We price against champagne. Our quality is similar to champagne. So it makes perfect sense to do that. Um, until recently, the largest market in uh, the world outside France for champagne was the UK, which was helpful. It's actually now the... Uh, third largest, I think, or second, second largest outside Champagne. Um, and the largest is now the United States. They've grown a lot. Uh, our market for Champagne has actually shrunk slightly, uh, largely as a result of the impact of Prosecco and Carver, um, although the English producers have had some effect. Um, even the Champenois would, would admit that. Um, so why do we look at the US? It's a big market for champagne, and it's just a very big market anyway. Yeah. So, And it's a very open market. Uh, the natural instincts of Americans are, if they see something on the shelf they haven't seen before, they'd like to try it. Now, if it's good enough, they'll come back. If it's not good enough, you, you won't, they won't come back. So it's a slightly do-or-die market. Um, yeah. But that's fine, because we are good enough, um, and we do find people like it. So it's a whole mixture of reasons why uh, why the US is a good place to go to. 
Second one after that is actually Japan, surprisingly enough. Uh, that's the next biggest market for champagne. It's a huge market out there. Uh, and the Japanese are not quite so open to new things. They love things English and British. Um, we have a reputation, I'm talking now generally, not just in the wine world, uh, for very high quality products. Uh, and mostly, I think, deserved the products that are sold in Japan. So you go to Japan with at least uh, the, the buyers will have an open mind about it, but they recognize that persuading their consumers to convert is a harder job than it would be in, say, America or in the UK because people would, as you said earlier, like to buy locally if they can. Um, on the other hand, I think they will be a very big market for us. Uh, and once we are there, there will be a very loyal market. So it's, they're well worth going for. And after that, it's Australia, surprisingly enough. Um, and... Um, we, we sell ourselves as British wine down there because uh, the Australians see us as uh, the British are their cousins, uh, um, uh, close historical connections, but the English are the bastards that beat us at rugby. <laughs> <laughs> or not, as the case yeah, may be. <laughs> absolutely, who knows. Um, exciting to know that we, we've got that reputation and we're exporting to those markets, and even more exciting to know that, that none of them are, are in the EU with all that's going on in the news at the moment and the challenges around the European Union. Exciting to know that you know we can and should be exporting globally, not just to our nearest neighbours. Well, without wishing to make a... Uh, rather obviously political point, um, I have to say that Brexit is, uh, I'm sorry to use that word. Um, Don't worry, everybody is. <laughs> everybody has to so yeah. sooner or later. Brexit is kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant to us, but it's not terribly important. Good. Um, I wouldn't say that we don't export to the EU. Um, Norway and Finland, of course Norway's not in the EU, uh, but it's sort of halfway in. Um, are good markets for us. Uh, interesting that they are countries that don't produce their own wine, but they do have close affinities with the British. Um, Spain, Italy, France, we don't export anything to at the moment anyway. Uh, I'm talking Hattingly now. I think there may be others in the industry who do, but again, I don't think they'll be exporting very much. Germany is an interesting one. They are very big uh, drinkers of sparkling wine, sect in their case, of course. Um, and we did finally manage, we've been trying to get into Germany for a long time. We finally managed at Hattingley to get uh, an importer there who would take some volume. Um, it's a sort of German equivalent of uh, a place called Jake's, Jack, um, which is a chain not dissimilar in some ways to Majestic, I suppose, uh, for English listeners. Um, now, uh, the reason I think we find France, Italy and Spain difficult is not uh, the fact that they make sparkling wine. Of course, they all do. Uh, not the fact, it's not prejudice or anything like that. It's, it's the structure of their own internal markets. If you go to a restaurant in Provence, you will be offered Provençal wine. You won't be offered even Burgundy or Loire Valley or Bordeaux. There might be one on the met on the wine list, but not much more than that. Usually, there are of course exceptions. Um, so the idea of them putting an English sparkling wine on the menu is um, they're 
<laughs> unthinkable. Feels pretty remote. Yeah. It feels remote. <laughs> uh, and certainly the French that come here, and we get quite a lot of French coming here, you'd be quite surprised, and a few Italians and Spanish too, uh, particularly from the larger sparkling houses, they are very impressed by the quality of what we produce. Um, so uh, the EU is a rather uh, difficult market for us. Um, if anything, the issues surrounding the EU and Brexit for us, and I'm talking really now as an industry, although um, Hattingley is no different from anyone else in this respect, is more surrounding the need for uh, labour. Um, we rely on particularly Romanians to pick, uh, but it's not just picking. If it was just that, yeah, maybe we could go without. Um, but pruning vines in January is not something that's a particularly enjoyable experience, as you can imagine. Um, more importantly, you actually need to know what you're doing. And there, there simply aren't the people in the UK, uh, mostly, who do know, certainly aren't in the numbers, who could do that job and who want to do it. YGB is desperate to encourage people here to, to learn those skills. And we have an education and training committee which is devoted to uh, trying to improve the education training throughout the industry and everything from pruning, picking, tying, bud rubbing, the other sort of more menial tasks in the vineyards, right the way through to uh, managing a vineyard, to making wine, to selling it, uh, researching. Uh, we encourage apprenticeships, so Hattingley couldn't make the government apprenticeship scheme work, for example, uh, but we hired an apprentice just over two years ago. And in conjunction with the Vintners Company in London, which is one of the great livery companies in London, and the Wines and Spirits Education Trust, uh, we trained her up. Um, she was a graduate. She has now gone, we put her through a course at Plumpton, uh, and she's now an assistant winemaker here and will remain. It was successful enough that another winery, uh, other wineries wanted to, to follow on. The Vintners Company was very, uh, very pleased with what happened, and you know we're hugely grateful for their support um, in this and in many other areas, actually. Uh, and we've had two more apprentices, uh, last the second of whom started beginning of this week, and the first one started about a month ago. And we'll, I'm sure we'll continue with that. Amazing. I, I think it's exciting that we, you know, in, in a world where it feels like every job is being replaced by an app on your phone at some point, it's nice to know that we can create new industries with proper careers and apprenticeships and a real structure and develop people into something that is is fascinating and also something that we, you know, ultimately export. So, uh, yeah, it's good. Well, I'm very keen on hurting you, and this is partly my uh, city experience, that people... Uh, a, enjoy what they're doing. And, and that enjoyment, I think, comes from uh, the job itself and a sense of satisfaction and, and, and interest. You've got to be interested. And the great thing about the wine industry is a lot of people are interested in it to begin with. But there's a lot to do. There are, there are obviously quite a lot of fairly uh, straightforward tasks. Um, but uh, as you rightly say, there are long-term careers here. And when we advertise um, uh, for jobs, which we do fairly regularly, we very often get 50 or 100 applicants, uh, mostly British, uh, but we get them from all over the world as well. Uh, people do want to come and work here. And 
if you were an overseas qualified winemaker, I can well see why, because uh, if you're an Italian there, you've got a um, an industry that's very mature. Probably most of them are own family-owned enterprises. So if you're not in the family, you're not going to go very far. Whereas here, uh, you have a vibrant industry that's really beginning to spread its wings, expanding very rapidly. Opportunities, I wouldn't say endless, but there's huge numbers of opportunities in it. Mm. And, and innovating, so learning new approaches and new techniques. Absolutely. I think if the, uh, if, if the government are listening, because the one thing that you've said, and it's the same in, in hospitality, and I hear the same things in uh, education and in healthcare, is that need for a flexible workforce and that need for immigration. And whether it's within the EU or whether it's global, it doesn't matter. But, but when the government stand up and say, look, you know, this is about immigration and we're closing our borders and we're not going to allow people in, that's ridiculous because there's so many industries in the UK that require that flexible mm. workforce. And that, that in or out be. of EU, the conversation's got to be had that the workforce have got to come from somewhere. I don't mind. And in fairness to the government, I think they've been told it so yes. many times by so many people, uh, both in mainstream agriculture, if you like, as well as us, uh, and in the hospitality industries and in a number of others, actually. It's not just even those. Um, and they've started listening. And I th I think this problem will be solved. I think realistically, we, as a country, we can't live without um, certainly temporary immigration. I mean, let's be honest about it. There was a seasonal agricultural workers scheme for 50 years where people were coming in quite regularly. And that was only uh, abolished in about 2015, by memory, really very recently. They clearly didn't anticipate what was going to happen a year later. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's not an unsolvable problem. It's not an it unsolvable for, for problem. And, uh, but we do it, um, we, I do the flexible workforce, not because of what we want, although clearly that is helpful, um, but because I know from experience that when you're young, you want to have, I'm not talking about my personal desires when I was young, I'm talking about what I was told that youngsters wanted over the last 30 years. They don't want to be put in a box and told you'll do this for the rest of your life. They want to have uh, interest and different things to, to do during their, their days and weeks at work. So you know, having people going around and, and doing different tasks is, is, keeps their interest up. The other thing we do at Hattingley, which we're very keen on, uh, is secondments. Uh, so we uh, will we've seconded our winemakers in particular to uh, wineries overseas. We've had one go to New Zealand, uh, one to South Africa, one to Spain, uh, one to Champagne. I think one or two others too. Um, and the reason we do that is partly because when you're young, you want to travel, you want to see the world a bit. It's no bad thing for people to see how other people do things. They learn a bit. They sometimes come back realizing that actually the grass isn't quite as green as they thought it was on the other side of the fence, um, which is no bad thing either. But it's, a, it's an experience that they enjoy, and that's only to be applauded. Yeah. I think those summer jobs, I, I travelled through Australia 20 years ago and uh, survived by working on various farms for a couple of months at a time, prawning gourmet tomatoes in the 40-degree heat, being paid by the metre. Um, good memories, but, yeah, those, those, those jobs are great. And, yeah. and it, yeah, I, again, in or out of Europe, are that's we, a whole other uh, debate. Uh, uh, you know, it's not entirely altruistic. We... Um, gain from those comments and the most obvious case in, in 
for us, us Hattingley, was we uh, seconded someone to a place called Akarua down in New Zealand, which is a great little winery. That's not so little, it's bigger than us. Um, and the winemaker came back uh, and they made uh, an ice style wine. They couldn't call it an ice wine because uh, ice wines, the grapes have to freeze on the vine and then be crushed, frozen on the vine. But in this country, as in New Zealand, temperatures don't get down low enough. So paradoxically, our, our rather ropey climate isn't ropey enough for that yeah. purpose. Whereas in Canada, of course, they do make some wonderful ice wine. Um, but what they did in Akarua was to freeze the grapes, having picked them. Uh, and so we do that here. We call it, it's, a, it's a, an ice wine style, but it's not actually true ice wine. But it tastes great. It's a, it's a dessert wine. Very unusual. Mm. Uh, there's lots of other issues surrounding making it, but that's winemaker's secrets. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Um, also, so we've, we've spoken predominantly about uh, sparkling. How are we getting on? Uh, right early on in the conversation, conversation, you mentioned our poor reputation for kind of still wines and red wines. Are we making any inroads in that, or should we just focus on the uh, the sparkling variety? Well, I, I, as chairman of Wine GB, you'd never catch me saying that <laughs> reputations of any any of my colleagues' wines were poor. This I was said a they long had time a, ago. I said a they had a certain ago. reputation. <laughs> Um, but no, in fairness, uh, the still wines of 30 years ago were, a lot of people regarded them as pretty poor. Yes. Um, the, I think uh, that's changing. Um, it's it's going to take time um, and it's changing for a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, we're simply becoming more experienced in making wine. Uh, we've got a much a stronger cadre of uh, professional winemakers in the in the UK who've been through Plumpton. They have much better equipment. It's no longer uh, the preserve of people with an acre of vines uh, who are doing it all themselves, which who were the best will in the world, can't uh, have the the equipment that they need to produce top. They well, can't have the equipment they really need. It's not to say they can't produce some good wines, and some of them do very well, but it's all too easy not to. Uh, the second reason, uh, I think, is that people are beginning to draw on the experience from sparkling wines and starting to use particularly Pinot Noir to make red wine. Uh, now, that wasn't happening 30, 40 years ago, at least not in any on any scale at all, if, it, if, if, if at all. And you're beginning to see some quite uh, respectable, some very respectable uh, still red wines appearing uh, and still white wines, of course, as well. And I think that will uh, just, will we ever be a still wine producer uh, in bulk? Actually, I should say there are other varieties that people do use for still wine, uh, things like Bacchus, um, which seems to do very well here as a, as a varietal. Um, and uh, people produce some pretty respectable wines. They're different, which is no bad thing. They're very different, some of them, from uh, imported wines. Uh, but as I say, it's no bad thing, that. Uh, and the quality is definitely improving as we, as we go along. I think one has to be realistic um, for the reasons we talked about earlier with uh, sparkling wines and yield, uh, 
it's always going to be a slightly challenging value proposition, I think. Um, that said, people who produce still, and Hattingley doesn't produce still wine, so I'm not really um, not as familiar with markets for that as I am for sparkling. Uh, they say that people buy their still wines very readily and they come back for more every time. So who am I to doubt it? Mm, okay. And as far as I'm concerned, as Hattingley and as Wine GB chairman, the better they do, the better and happier I'll be. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. that makes a lot of sense. How far uh, north can we grow at the moment? Are we growing across the whole country or is this very much a southern England kind of domain? Um, it's It's not... But clearly, southern England uh, benefits from the best climate. Um, so I think it's better put that there are um, there is more suitable, highly suitable land in the south of England than anywhere else. Uh, there are people growing grapes as far north as Yorkshire. Uh, one person I actually tried in Scotland. I think he stopped now. Um, you have to remember it's not just uh, how far north you are. There's a plus to going north, which is... Uh, you get longer days in the summer, so more sunlight, um, but it is cooler. Uh, on the other hand, if you can find a microclimate where it's a bit warmer and you have longer days, then that might work. And I've never heard of anyone doing it, but I've always thought that uh, our, I think it's Argyle, where uh, the west coast of Scotland, where the Gulf Stream comes around and hits it, you'll get palm trees growing. Well, as soon as you see palm trees growing somewhere in the UK... My immediate reaction is, hmm, I wonder. Um, I'm not encouraging anyone to try, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, not, not but I do wonder. Too. I don't know the easiest way of kind of sort of saying where we're at from a production-wise at the moment uh, now and what the trajectory is, whether that's number of bottles produced or acres, but both in Hattingley's terms and then UK-wise, what's our trajectory? What's the outlook for the next decade? Glowing yeah. is probably the shortest way of putting yeah. it. Um, production and sales are... Both at Hattingley and at um, nationally, are expanding at an extraordinarily rapid rate. You do have to remember that what uh, in the sparkling world and and production is roughly seventy percent sparkling now across the country, uh, and if anything, that percentage is growing. Um, we, as Wine GB, anticipate it will be over ninety percent within five to ten years. Um, uh, the uh, so sparkling, we're selling what we made at least three years ago. And that's because the production process uh, me means that we have to keep the wine in bottle on, on its lees, in other words, with the yeast in it, for at least, legally, at least eight months, uh, or maybe nine months. In practice, nearly everyone keeps it longer than that. Um, and uh, our Blonde de Blanc, for example, at Hattingley will be on lees for four to five years sometimes. So it's uh, we've just released our 13. Um, so uh, with that caveat, uh, let me say where we are production-wise. Uh, production in any given year is clearly a huge for individual wineries uh, and indeed for the country. Um, is a function very much of the weather in that year, uh, but uh, it's also a function, of course, of how much how much land is under vine, and that's been expanding very rapidly over the last few years. In 16, 17, and 18, we planted in aggregate in the country about 3 million vines. Um, this year, we're anticipating another 2 million going in, uh, and 
I see no reason why that is likely to slow down, particularly for the next few years. To put that in perspective, uh, five million vines is probably, uh, to, to vinify it, probably needs around 30 Hattingleys. So the, sh the, the issue that's confronting the industry will be winery capacity as much as anything. Uh, at Hattingley, we are we, we run our winery, so it's in a, what I would call a 100% year. It's full in a 100% year. Uh, caused some problems in 18 when we had a 150% year because we had to scramble around to find temporary tanks. Uh, we bought, had to buy an extra press. Um, but that's good because in the long term, it enhances our capacity. Um, so in 2010, our first year, Hattingly made about 25,000 bottles. Uh, in 2018, we made 580,000. Um, so you can see the growth wow. has been Jeez. substantial. In terms of the country, it's not quite that fast. Um, in 2000, we don't really have very good figures uh, going backwards um, because nobody was collecting them uh, who had... Uh, well, there were one or two people collecting them, but the figures were... Um, privately produced for, for whatever reason, perhaps not the best that could be. Um, anyway, YGB instituted a survey in 2018 of its members, and that suggested that in 2017, uh, we made about 5.9 million bottles as a country, of which about 70% was sparkling wine. Uh, we didn't ask how much was actually sold, um, but we did ask it in the following year, which is the beginning of this year in relation to the 18 year. Now, uh, production in 2018 had expanded from 5.9 million bottles to 15.6 million. Now, that is a reflection to a large extent of the incredibly good year that we had uh, in climate terms. Um, uh, but it also reflects, to a certain extent, the increased acreage under vine sales were probably about three three million bottles roughly um and uh, that was uh, we expect that's going to expand pretty fast from here um exports doubled from four percent to eight percent um uh, so it's a it's a fast expanding industry at the moment. That ability to flex uh, the number of wines produced is just phenomenal, isn't it? So it yeah. is, is one of the issues that we're planting more vines, we're getting more acreage, but we don't have the wineries to actually process. Correct. That's the problem. Now, it's not um, that figure that I gave of thirty different thirty new Hattingleys. To put that in perspective, there's probably only about three or four people who make wine for other people, of which we're one. Um, maybe a few more than that. But, uh, but three or four of real scale. Um, <clears throat> and some of the vines that have been planted will be committed to existing producers, uh, but not all. Uh, and uh, certainly if anyone listening is contemplating planting a vineyard, I'd, I wouldn't discourage them from doing so, but they do need to think about where they're going to get their wine made earlier in the piece rather than late. We have had people come to us at Hattingley uh, about to produce their first grapes, uh, relying on us to take their grapes, but not having told us that they were relying on us or even, or even approached us. And, of course, we're full. Yeah. Um, now, we obviously endeavour to help out as far as we possibly can. Um, and if you're small, then it's a bit easier. But um, 
if you've got some some of these people have got thirty or forty acres, which is you know hundred can be a hundred hundred and fifty tons of grapes. And what level of investment, if you had that, to 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 build your own? winery or boutique winery i suppose at that level what sort of investment are you looking at this is a big problem for that's them to a, overcome presumably. that's a really hard question because uh you um how can i put it a lot uh, it's 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 not cheap it's certainly not cheap um it depends on do you need a building uh, if you don't need a building then that obviously reduces it substantially um what, how far do you want to go? Do you want to do? If you're, do, you're doing still or sparkling, if you're doing still, you need tanks. You need. Do you going to do your own bottling? Do you want a bottling line? Are you going to hire one? It so there's a huge number of variables in there. Yeah, it's not. A, I can see what they knock question. on your door. That would be exactly. And then when you say planting two million new vines, what's the time before the first harvest? How how long do they need to be in the ground before you can actually? Get you out? won't get your first harvest before the third year. Third year, and then it'll be a relatively small one. Um, the fourth year, you'll get a, a better harvest, probably half to two-thirds of a normal yield. And then for the fifth year onwards, you should get full yield. But, of course, depending on the weather. Yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> and then you should get 30 years of top yield, Okay, 25 to 30 years. It's a decent yeah. return eventually. you just got to be patient eventually. to start with. Eventually, you've got to be patient. It always blew my mind that it takes a 1,000 days to grab asparagus from seed, and then it's only in season for sort of, you know, 10 weeks. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it was worth it when it gets there. Lovely, though. yeah, New yeah. Forest asparagus. Yeah, absolutely I've, love it. I've grown my own in the past. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We we grew it. It took three years to grow, and then when we when it came out, it actually wasn't even that good, which was disappointing. Oh, really? But, oh, uh, no, we didn't have that problem. No, I'm not, no. Uh, I'm not, I'm not much of a farmer. I'm, I'm much better at, uh, <laughs> yeah, being in the kitchen no, no, and being this on was, the land. Land, this so. was just a kitchen garden. It wasn't. Was it? We weren't doing it professionally. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again and, this year. Um, uh, it's it's sad though when you get to the end of the asparagus season. You think, phew, thank goodness that stopped yeah, growing. Yeah, I've you, had enough had asparagus for this year. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Um, What's the impact on the environment? So this is obviously becoming an increasingly important thing uh, with all businesses around, whether it's your packaging, how you transport it, how you grow it. I've got no idea in, in vineyards whether this is, is this good for the countryside, bad for the countryside. So my first question is around what's the impact? And secondly, being aware of that, is it different in the UK to the rest of Europe? Is there anything going on around the environmental Aspects apart from food miles by buying British wine, is there anything else we should think about? Um, well, Wine GB has just uh, created a sustainability committee, which we hadn't had before. But quite a number of the vineyards have been uh, looking at this individually and, and sharing information amongst themselves as to best practice here. And vineyards generally are quite good um, places uh, for the environment. They uh, although a lot of vineyards, most vineyards in this country will use insecticides and herbicides to control the pests. My view, we have to, but in fairness, there are some organic vineyards around, a couple of biodynamic ones even. Um, but we have quite large headlands, which we basically uh, cut. We don't really have to do much with those other than keep them mown. And they're pretty good environments. Um Compared, if you compare them to, uh, and this is what I think you should probably be doing, is comparing them to arable fields where, yes, you'll get, uh, and I speak as partly an arable farmer, you'll get uh, headlands and strips around the side of uh, environmental uh, quality. But the centre of the field will be kept firmly under control. Um, that's not the case with the vineyard, really. You've got as I say, uh, and the, the sprays 
tend to be more targeted. Uh, here at Hattingley, we use tunnel sprayers. I'd like to say it was purely to make sure the spray doesn't go anywhere, but there's also a financial incentive to do it because uh, we use 70% less spray by by doing that. It collects it and it, the spray only goes on the vines. It doesn't go anywhere else. So these grass strips between the two are quite sort of uh, decent. So. Okay. And when you come into the wineries, um, I think uh, there are some things we can do. Uh, Hattingley adopted solar power very early on, um, and we we can't generate all the power we need because the presses and the tanks do use quite a lot. Um, but we do generate what we can. Uh, we have a lot of waste uh, comes out of the winery. We use about seven liters of water for every liter of wine we make. Um, and we have a system, we're way off um, the mains drains here. So we have our own system that takes in the waste, uh, treats it, and it leaves us just pure water as a biobubble, special environmentally sensitive system, uh, which we follow. So yeah, there are things that we can do. Hmm. Okay, thank you. The, um, big, the biggest issue, funnily enough, is carbon dioxide because fermentation naturally creates it, but we've never managed to find a system. And if there's any uh, equipment manufacturer listening, if there's a, uh, a decent system that allows us to collect the carbon dioxide that's created, I'm interested. Yeah, that would make sense. We buy carbon dioxide for all of our beer. Uh, well, that's even worse. It's, so. To add insult to injury, we buy carbon dioxide yeah, okay. too right. uh, because we have to keep the tops of the tanks yeah, uh Yes, oxygen free same as with the beer. Mm. yeah yeah that feels like there should be a solution there doesn't it it does doesn't it yeah, yeah. okay um which bit of this uh, this overall industry this overall business then gives you the most pleasure the most reward when you wake up in, in the morning and you think oh this is a this is a great day what's what's the bit of it that really still excites you is it oh uh, it's got to be harvest yeah. i mean harvest is such an exciting time um the the wineries are buzz with people both the, the long-term employees and one of the great things about this industry is we are creating rural employment in areas which uh really lost huge numbers with the for decline in agricultural employment for all good reasons i don't quite understand um but we we use a lot of people and so you know Hattingley employs about 20 full-time and probably another 20 full-time equivalents uh, over the course of a year um and um but harvest has you've got a mixture of uh, the, the the permanent staff for whom this is what they've been working for all year uh, and the temporary staff who's come from all over the globe actually we have lots of new zealanders and australians and uh, canadians all sorts of people coming over and some and english too you know it's not uh, not entirely uh, immigrant from that point of view um and uh, it's lovely watching them for me watching them when they start the beginning of harvest they're all sort of uh, slightly um quiet they keep to themselves and then they have lunch together and another lunch. By the end of harvest, they're all great mates, tired. It's hard work, um, but, um, you know, they feel there's a, a good job well done, which is what normally happens. How long is the harvest period? It's, it starts usually the last week in September 
uh, through to the last week of October, even the first week of November. Again, it's dependent on the climate, of course. Um, so 18, we actually started about 10, 10, 10 days to two weeks earlier and finished in the third week of October, which was unprecedented. Wow. So, Amazing. And the staff start a little bit earlier and end a little bit later because there are things that have to be done uh, post-harvest. Okay. Well, as a, as a man with a restaurant on the seafront, if we can have another year like last year's summer for May, June and July, I think we had 90 days pretty much of unbroken sunshine. I I'd know, be very it was, happy. It was sure, truly wonderful. I'm sure it helps you out as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you've been in, in business for a long time. You've been in the city. You've, you've, mm. you've done traditional farming. You're now in, in, in winemaking. Is there any particular advice? I think we get asked a lot as business people, as entrepreneurs, for, for advice in business. Any advice you hear given out where you go, oh my God, that's nonsense, that's very academic, and in the real world that doesn't apply? Or the flip side, any really good advice that you hear people being given or that you give to people who are interested in going into, into business, and um, particularly in anything to do with food and drink? But uh... hmm. I think probably believe in yourself as much as anything. Um, there'll always be people that will tell you uh, 10 reasons why something can't be done. Um, and uh, the staff here, my uh, comment to them is sometimes has to be, don't, don't tell me about the problems. There are no problems. There's only missing solutions. So come back to me with a solution. Um, not every business will succeed, of course. Um, do your planning. Uh, try and look forward. Try and work out what you want to be. Uh, we had some basics basic ideas here when we started the most important of which was it, we wanted it to be a commercial venture it wasn't a hobby um, but I had no idea it was going to grow to the scale it was going to grow I thought um, it was going to be a small adjunct to the farm but I learned very quickly about even then there was a shortage of winery capacity uh, and the market was growing rapidly so do your homework amazing well, uh, congratulations on what you've achieved. You, Thank you. I think, are one of the reasons that uh, that we as Britain should be sort of more proud and stand more tall. The fact mm. that we can come into a very old industry and, and innovate and do so well so quickly uh, with mm. that kind of trajectory uh, of growth, I think, is really exciting. For and, and this is the reason I do this podcast. It's for people to understand who are sat in their restaurants and the bars or even at home and just in, in, enjoying a glass of wine in the garden is to know the amount of work and the amount of love and the amount of effort and the roller coaster of seasonality and, and the human beings that are involved behind our industry, I think, is, is really exciting. So thank you for sparing the time. Um, a quick one on, on what's next. And I think you've answered that with, with just you're going to be bloody busy by the sounds of it. But also, where should people go if they want to buy your wine or if they want to follow what you're up to and learn more? Where should they go? Well, uh, obviously, you can get it from our website, uh, hattingleyvalley.com or hattingleyvalley.co.uk. Uh, but we're also available in uh, Ocado, uh, Tesco's and uh, Waitrose online. Amazing. That's, That's the good. easiest. But there are a number of other, uh, particularly locally, uh, on local retailers uh, and lots of hotels and restaurants that stock us too. Excellent. Good for the UK wine industry to be getting into the uh, supermarkets and having UK sparkling sat on the shelves where it deserves to be. So that's good. Well, if you happen to be in America, you can buy us in Whole Foods, which is uh, one of the biggest supermarkets uh, over there, a really high quality one. Uh, say in Germany, Jack's is the place to go. Um, all in the fine wine sections. Simon, thank you so much for sparing okay. the time. Good luck okay. in the future. It's been a real pleasure and thank I look forward much. to watching the journey. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you. Thank you. 
So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.